I want to invite you to take that Bible this morning and look over to John chapter 12. We will go back to our exposition. If you're visiting today, I met Noah and his family coming in. They work for Ambassadors for Christ, but maybe you're a visitor today, and uh, we are expositing verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, that is our text. Let me read this passage. Of course, as you can see, the Lord's table is set before us where we remember his death on the cross. And I think the passage, as you will see, will be completely appropriate for that as you prepare your heart. But let me read John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. He said, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on the account of him, uh, but also for, to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death, to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, when you open your Bible and we read together John chapter 12, it is just a masterpiece in God's word. And as we come to this text, the anointing of Mary or Mary's anointing of Jesus, we're remembering, as it's stated right there in 12.1, that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. In fact, look back just one chapter in 1143. It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. And so just this last chapter, he raised Lazarus by the command of his voice. And then you remember as he raised Lazarus from the dead, look back in chapter 11, verse 53, what the response was to that. It says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death so Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. After he had raised Lazarus from the dead, he had to go away. He went away, and it's hard to exactly tell how long he went away, 
but we think in the scripture it was probably somewhere between two to three weeks. Now you remember as we come into John chapter 12, 1, it says there it's six days before the Passover. So understand that as you open your Bible to John chapter 12, even though it goes to John 21, he is just six days before the cross. Six days is all. And so John devotes half of his gospel to the last week, you might say, of the life of Christ. Here's what you want to see in this text as we look at it. You have side by side in the same text, passionate love and bitter hate. They're just put right next to each other. I mean, sandwiched between the devotion of Mary is the wickedness of those who seek to murder our Lord. Now, before we dive right into the text, let's look at the setting. Look with me at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, the Bible says that it's six days before Passover. So if you could imagine, it's the last week of the life of Christ. It's Saturday night. It's probably after the Sabbath. So it's after the sunset, if you will. In just six days, our Lord would be lifted up on the cross. And the Bible says right there in 12.1 that it's Passover. You remember that Passover is the passing over of the homes of the Israelites by the angel of death who killed the firstborn of Egypt. And of course, there's rich meaning there that our Lord Jesus Christ, even as we come to the Lord's table, would become the Passover lamb. So that's the setting. It's just a week, six days before he would be lifted up on the cross. It's most likely on Saturday night. That next morning on Sunday would be called the what? The triumphal entry. In fact, look down at 12.12. It just says the next day a, a large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and there it is. That's Palm Sunday. And so here's the setting for the text. Now, the Bible says in verse 1 that he came to Bethany. So you remember in chapter 11, he went to Ephraim. And then he came back now for Passover to this town called Bethany. I've mentioned in John's gospel that Bethany is just about two miles from Jerusalem. Now, it says that he came back to a home. And when we put the, all the gospels together, at least according to Mark 14, he's in the home of Simon the leper. Or we could say Simon the ex-leper. Now, as he comes back to Bethany, he goes into that home. Look at the text in 12.2. It said, so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served. That, that's natural, isn't it? And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So there's a dinner given. He comes back into Bethany, and a meal is served. Now, when you begin to put the accounts together, I mean, we would at least know that there's 15 men at this meal. Jesus is there, of course. The 12 are there. Lazarus is there. It's in the home of Simon the leper. And we know that Mary and Martha are there. Now imagine if you're in this 
scene in this setting and you're eating a meal together and you're eating with Lazarus himself. It's kind of stunning when you think about it. It almost seems too good to be true, almost. I mean, here was the guy who had been in the grave for four days. I'm sure when he was resurrected before that, he was ghastly. Do you remember weeks ago we said that his body had probably turned into green gases, if you will. And so they come back and they're in Bethany. Imagine if you're in that place, sitting at that meal, and the Lord Jesus is there. The 12 disciples are there, but Lazarus is also there sitting at this wonderful meal. Now, here's what I want to look at as we walk through this to prepare us for the Lord's table. There's four characters that will begin to emerge in 12, 1 through 11. Four characters. Those characters are Mary. Those, that second character is Judas. Of course, the greatest is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then the fourth character is a group of leaders of Israel. Those four characters will be set in four scenes. And these characters set in these scenes will magnify the death of Christ and reveal true devotion. It's going to magnify his death and reveal true devotion. And as, I, as we walk into this text, I want you to know that something will be expected from you this morning. Something will be demanded from you. Something is going to be demonstrated here in terms of his death, in terms of Mary's devotion, that the Spirit of God would want to direct your way. So as we walk through the text, yes. We'll walk through it historically, yes. We'll look at these four characters. Absolutely, it's the Word of God. We'll look at those characters set within the scene. But listen, something is asked of you this morning as you come to the Lord's table. It should always be that way when we're at Grace Church of the Valley. Never ever would we study the Bible to just look at it for its historical value. We, we do so because we come this morning and we want it to change our life. And so let's dive into these characters, into these scenes. First, I want you to look with me at the devotion of Mary. The devotion of Mary. Pick up the text in verse 3. Mary, therefore, they're at the table, they're at dinner, right? She therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary is mentioned three times, three different times in the gospel. What's amazing in the three times that she is seen is that she's every single time at the feet of Jesus. I think it's interesting. As well, Martha is the one who is serving. Now, she's at this dinner, and of course, you remember Lazarus was raised, but you remember also that Mary is Lazarus's, what? It's her brother. And he was raised from the dead. And maybe just some weeks after that resurrection, they're eating together this meal. 
And in the midst of this meal comes Mary, the text says, with a pound of expensive ointment. And it says there that she at least anoints the feet of Jesus. I mean, it's quite a picture. Go back to that scene. If I put the gospel accounts together, okay, in Mark 14, verse 3, it's a little bit more descriptive. It says that she came with what the Bible calls an alabaster flask. So if you can picture this, she came with a flask. We might even call it a vial. And it was a vial with a long necked bottle, if you will, and it was made in those times at a very special marble, and in that vial and in that flask held this very, very, very expensive perfume. Now, it's interesting, Grace Church of the Valley, that Mark gives the the thought that she just didn't pour out the perfume, So they're sitting at this meal, and it's not like she was dabbing the perfume. It says in Mark 14, verse 3, she smashed the vial. She broke the vial. In other words, once she smashed it and once she broke it, it could never be used again. In other words, there was something in Mary's devotion symbolizing the totality of of the gift that she gave to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it would be fair to say that for her, for Mary, a drop was not enough. Nothing was too great for her Savior. Nothing was too great for the one who brought her brother back from the dead. And in this dinner, she's at this meal, and there is Jesus, her Lord, and there is Lazarus. Now, the the Bible says, you can see it there in verse 3, that it was an expensive, it uses the language ointment. In other words, it's an expensive perfume. The Greek word has the word for myrrh. So it was an expensive perfume. Now, look what the Bible says. It says there in 12.3 that it was made from pure nard. So what's that? Well, nard was a precious oil that was extracted from a plant. Uh, sometimes they call this spike nard, or here, pure nard. There was, it was a plant, and a spike went up from it, and they extracted this oil, and the plant came from India. It came out of the Himalayas, and it was precious. It was expensive. It was hard to get hard to find. Travelers brought it in from a a great distance. But you'll note that it wasn't just nard. Look at verse 3 for a second. It was pure nard. In other words, here is this pure nard in this alabaster flask, and it's genuine. In other words, she's not giving Jesus a knockoff. This is the real thing. And the nard, we don't know from the text, we think might have been a family heirloom handed down to her. And in that case, it possessed not only sentimental value, but it also possessed, obviously, monetary value. 
Now look again at the text. You say, how much was it? Well, it's there. It, she took a, do you see that verse 3? A pound. You say, what's a pound? A pound is just short of 12 ounces. So it would be like a soda can. And it's in this alabaster uh, vial or flask. I mean, that's a lot of perfume, is it not? Very expensive. You say, well, how expensive was it? If you look down at 12.5, Judas, and we'll pick this up later, says, why was this ointment not sold, there it is, for 300 denarii? You say, how much is that? That's a day laborer's wage. So what you have here in this vial for a day laborer was a year's wages. You say, Scott, there's more than 300 days, obviously, but there were Sabbath days and there were festival days. So understand she walks in with this oil, this expensive pound, this 12 ounces, and it is the equivalent of a year's wages. Now, the text says that she, you can see it there, anointed the feet of Jesus. But there's more there, and I don't want to bring out every nuance of all the Gospels. But in Mark 14, it adds something for us. It says in Mark 14 that Mary broke the perfume vial, and it's interesting. There it says she poured it over his head. So that's interesting. And in essence, then, the myrrh is running over his entire body. She takes this vial, she breaks the neck, she pours it down his hair, if you will, on his head, running over his body is this myrrh. And she anoints his feet, the Bible says. You say, well, how how could she anoint his feet at a table? Uh, They're eating a meal. Well, you remember in Bible times, it's not like our times, they had those low-standing tables. And they wouldn't sit in chairs. They would sit on the ground. And maybe, should I show you? They would sit on the ground if, here's the table, okay, would sit like this, eating together. Is that okay? I do this in the new building. Um, they, can you see me? They, they would sit at the table with their feet extended, if you will, outward. And so here's what this precious woman did. She breaks the vial. She comes over to the Lord Jesus Christ at this kind of U-shaped table with the feet extending away, making it a possible, and she anoints both his head, Mark 14, and his feet. Now, now listen, Grace Church, to touch the feet for someone who is Jewish was, in their culture, a degrading act. I mean, only in those times did a slave do that. But here's Mary's devotion, as it is. She so loved the Savior. I mean, who knows what kind of emotion overtook her? 
Who, who knows, as she's at that meal and the disciples are there and as her brother is sitting there, raised from the dead, she anoints his head. I'm thinking that the myrrh runs all the way down his body. It drips on his feet. And then would you look at verse 3? Look what it says. She wipes his feet with her hair. I think you know that the Jewish women considered their hair their glory. And by this act, Mary demonstrated her unashamed devotion for him. I think all the more striking since Jewish women and especially married women never ever unbound their hair in public, which to some would have been a sign of loose morals. But she must have unbound her hair and used her hair as a rag for Jesus. She was in essence, beloved, pouring out her soul to him whom she loved. Now, I don't want you to get this mixed up in your mind with Luke. A woman anointed the feet of Jesus, but the account is entirely different. It's not Bethany there, it's Galilee. There it said that she had tears. Mary has no tears. And we can take time, but I won't. But that's two different accounts in the gospel. But here on the devotion of Mary, you see that her devotion is extravagant. It's generous, to say the least. It's expensive. And the Bible says that as she broke this vial, you can not only see it, but you can smell it. Look at verse 3. It says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Can you picture that? Can you smell that? Hendrickson, the commentator, said, I hardly... I hardly know what to admire most. He said the irrepressible character of Mary's devotion, he said, or the lavish nature of her sacrifice. Hendrickson said that the former produced the latter. Such devotion. But not everybody shared her heart. Let me take you from Mary's devotion or the devotion of Mary, secondly, to the deception of Judas. The deception of Judas, fascinating. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas comes in, always listed In the list of disciples where last, always last. You you see see that there in verse 4 or verse 5 when, or at least in verse 4, Judas Iscariot. So what does that word mean? It's part of his name, Iscariot. If you're waiting for something uh, profound behind the meeting, there is nothing behind the word Iscariot. It just means man of carrioth. You say, what does that mean? It's just a little town south of Jerusalem. Here was one of the 12. Here was Judas Iscariot, man of Kerioth, just a tiny town. And what's interesting here, and I find this fascinating, 
John's giving you insight, writing after the event, obviously. I think what's interesting is it doesn't mention Judas, but only here. In the other text, in Mark 14, it says in verse 4 that some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? Interesting. Her act of devotion to some, you, hate, you say, who's the some? I mean, the some's obviously the disciples. John gives you another insight here, but the sum in Mark 14 is the disciples. And the reason I say that is it says in Mark 14, 5, that they, the disciples, scolded her. You can imagine this dinner. This is all happening, if you will, at the dinner. They scolded her. And the language there behind the word scolded her was they were snorting mad at Mary. In fact, it was the word used in biblical times to describe a a snorting horse, if you will. And so the disciples demean her. And they demean her gift. Only John tells us that it was Judas who asked this question. Listen, beloved, Judas is crafty. Judas is wicked. Judas is evil. Judas, to say the least, is covetous. And his wicked betrayal, his wicked deception is set against the beauty of Mary's devotion. And so Judas mockingly asks, why was this this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? In other words, it was expensive. I told you that it was at least a year's salary for a day laborer. I mean, what she did, beloved, was an enormous sum. I mean, imagine if your son or daughter working hard went out and spent all that they earned for a whole year and bought this perfume, this spikenard. But Judas didn't ask that question out of a heart of a philanthropist. Oh, no. Judas was an utter thief. An utter thief. He was deceptive. You say, how do you know that? Well, verse 6, John commentates, does he not? He said this, speaking of Judas, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas didn't care about the poor. All he wanted to do was pilfer from the money box, from the money bag, either way, for his own pleasure. Later, Judas, as you know, would betray the Son of Man for how many pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver, which adds up to about four months of salary. You know what's amazing here, beloved? This is what I think. Judas had a lot of influence. They, the disciples, were indignant in Mark 14. But I think it was Judas. He must have been leaning at the table with his feet out around that U-shape and said, what a waste. And he must have had so much influence 
that I think the other disciples just begin to say, this is wasteful. I thought about it. He had the money box. What do you think? Because everybody, what? Trusted him. They just trusted him. He's just one of the 12. I think it's fascinating if I can just add this. It is the first words ever spoken in the scripture by Judas is why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You know what's interesting? His last words that he ever uttered was Matthew 27, that I have betrayed innocent blood. So you go from the devotion of Mary to the deception of Judas. Listen, in John 6, 70, he, Jesus, calls him a devil. In John 13, 27, it will later tell us just in the next chapter that Satan had entered into him. Jesus will call him in John 17, 12, the son of destruction. And so he would, as the scripture says, betray our Lord. GCV, let me give you a warning, okay? Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness to follow the master. Can you imagine spending nearly three years of your life following him? watching him, observing him, hearing him. He's carrying around, if you will, the money box. And ladies, at least in the other gospel, used to put money in that so that it could help his ministry, his itinerant ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while the money's in there, he used to just kind of pilfer from it. He used to just take it. I, I think John wants you to see this juxtaposed to the devotion of Mary is the utter deception of Judas. And Judas was so effective in what he did that he got the disciples snorting mad. Now what's amazing in all of this is there's only one who would come to the defense of this woman. And who is it? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So I bring you to the third scene, and obviously the third character, which is the most important. And I bring you to the defense of Jesus. Do you remember this in verse 7? He said this in 7 and 8. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus said, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So here is the defense of our Lord He said, leave her alone, Judas. And I think he said it to all of them. Let literally her be. I love it. Mary breaks the vial. And Judas exclaims, what a waste. While Jesus commends her for her devotion. You say, why does he commend her? Well, certainly, we'll see this in a moment. She anointed the Lord Jesus Christ in anticipation of his burial. But can I just notice like a couple features for you on this anointing? Put them all together. Number one, her deed was beautiful. Her deed was beautiful. It says in Mark 14, 6 that she has done a beautiful thing, he says to me. 
In other words, it was a beautiful deed and it was recognized by our Lord in his defense. Secondly, I would say that not only was her deed beautiful, but secondly, her timing was right. Jesus said, you always have the poor with you. Certainly, we're to love the poor. Certainly, Jesus loved the poor. But here, the issue isn't the poor. It's Christ. It's the Savior who will be crucified in just six days. This is a time for worship, beloved. And it could be that out of all the disciples, at least according to the other text, that Mary alone had an insight. Or maybe she just sovereignly did it because she was preparing him for his burial. So her deed was beautiful. Her timing was right. Thirdly, her gift was appropriate. Her gift was appropriate. Now you can see that there in verse 7. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What does that mean? I think what it means is this. She kept the perfume, maybe even unknowingly, but in the sovereignty of God for this purpose, to anoint Jesus' body in anticipation of his burial. That's why. Listen, we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. And all I know is the guys closest to him didn't have a clue what was going on. But somehow, in the heart and the devotion of this woman, she anointed his body in anticipation of his burial. You say, well, Scott, it just says there, look at it again in verse 8, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. In other words, that she may keep it for this day, this purpose, to anoint me. And the, the reason I put it that way in anticipation is Mark 14, 8 says this, that she anointed my body beforehand for the burial. That's what she did. Matthew 26, 12, it says there, I don't think that's on the slide, but she has done it to prepare me for the burial. You say, how soon would it come? Well, our Lord knew. Glance down in John chapter 12. Look at verse 23. Um, he said in twelve twenty-three, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so here in this gift, it was totally appropriate because it was the unmistakable proclamation of the coming death of God's Son on the cross for your sin. So Mary's extravagant devotion displays the possibility, I think, that she alone in some way grasped the timing of his death and the worth of the Savior. Last feature I just recognize for you is, as we looked at those other three is that her gift was remembered. Her gift was remembered. Mark 14, 9, you remember this verse probably. Whenever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of, uh, of in memory of her. We're here today. We're here today as the gospels proclaimed what this woman did is spoken in memory of her. 
today, the fragrance of Mary's devotion fills Grace Church of the Valley. Can you smell it? Her gift was never forgotten. And of course, her action is not to draw attention to herself. It is to draw attention to her Lord. This is a woman that in the midst of this dinner, I just think is so effusive in her heart for her Savior. She must have gone in, got this family heirloom, breaks the vial, smashes it, pours it over his head, maybe all over, just running down his feet, the body to his feet. An incredible scene. But you'd think it'd be over, but it's not. There's a fourth scene. Would you look at it? There's a fourth scene, and there's a fourth set of characters. I'll just read it to you in nine. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, where? He's in Bethany. They came. In other words, they were probably coming into Passover anyways. Not only on on account of him, but they also wanted to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. I mean, just stop there for a second. This guy was raised from the dead. I mean, yesterday I was down in Los Angeles and at a wedding, and we were not far from the wax museum. <laughs> Do you remember that thing? Where they create the wax figures of the movie stars, and I think people come all over the globe, or at least they used to, to see these figures. Beloved, we're not talking about a wax figure here. We're, we're talking about the guy who's sitting at the table. The guy who had been dead four days. The guys whose body turned from rigor mortis into just jelly, if you will. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out kind of walking and they unbind him. And now weeks later, he's sitting at this table. And so these Jews at Passover season came not only to be with our Lord, Bible says there, to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. This is the death plot, though, by the priest. Look on, verse 10. So the chief priest, this is insane, made plans to put Lazarus to death, what, as well. Are you kidding me? They not only want to put the Lord to death, they want to do away with Lazarus. I mean, the wickedness, the death plot, the evil of this is unbelievable. Don't be so surprised even in our own day because of the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to put him to death. They are absolutely ruthless. They're seeking to put the Savior to death, 1153, because he raised him from the dead. And now in Bethany, a couple weeks later, they're trying to put him to death You say, why would they do that? It's in the text. Look at verse 11. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and what? Believing in Jesus. I love it. As the testimony went, as the word was shared, as Jesus Christ was revealed, many people were putting their faith in Christ. 
Now listen, beloved. How do we prepare for communion this morning? What, what is our response to be here? And I, I don't want to say this first, biblically, exegetically. We must be very careful to see this as a unique event in the life of Christ. just want to say that. It's a unique event. Mary had the wonderful privilege and devotion to prepare him for his burial. That's clear, okay? That is not a repeatable fact or an an event, okay? In other words, this account directs us to the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, who is about to go to his own death as the sacrificial Passover lamb to deliver you. That's the point. And so as you come to the table, listen. Go back to that night. Go back to that day. Go back to Saturday night. Go back to six days before Passover. But on that Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ would be lifted up and die on the cross. So that's the focal point. Yet, the issue here is not the repeatable act of Mary, but the devotion of a heart that is enthralled with Christ. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, as you prepare, as I prepare my own heart, true devotion does not ask, how much does it cost? True devotion gives all of yourself in adoring wonder and praise to the person of Christ who has the power over death. Amen? In other words, it's the heart we see here. In Mary's devotion... Let me say it this way, because this is your implication here. She's lost a sense of economy. She's lost a sense of restraint. In other words, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is infinitely more valuable than everything to her. She takes what is most precious and gives it back to the Savior whom she loves. You know what's interesting with Mary, just to point this out? And again, she's looking to Christ, but nothing was measured. Nothing was calculated about this gift. And there are some people who say that she didn't empty the alabaster flask. She just kind of dotted him. But, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says she broke the neck of the vial. She took, if you will, all 12 ounces And her devotion to our Lord was unrestrained. Have you lost that? Have you? So examining my own heart. You still love him like you did at the beginning? Or have you become calculating? Have you become cold in your service for the Lord? Have you become just brittle, if you will? I mean, who present can be commended by our Lord and hear him say, she has done what she could? Have we? Listen, God's desire for you this morning is to offer worship. Let me say this. 
Not from half your heart, not from half your wallet, not from half your talents, but the giving of everything we are and everything we have. Listen, the only thing that's going to help us as a church is to see that kind of utter love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord desires this morning a broken vial of devotion from you. Parents, he wants that from you. Students, he wants that from you this morning. The Lord desires that the pastors here, that the elders here, that the missionaries here model devotion to Christ above everything else and above everyone else. Certainly the Lord desires women like Mary who are preoccupied with his person rather than the pursuit of the earthly. Let me just say it this way. This is not a repeatable act. I get that and you get that. But true worship at times is extravagant. At times it's expensive. At times it's costly. So what does that mean, Pastor Scott? Could it be just your time you give to the Lord? Let me just even say this. Thank you to so many of you who made last week work as we opened. Just want you to know, as I walked in the building, and we were in the building all week, I was just utterly so thankful for so many people who gave their time, just out of devotion. It could be your talents. It could be your service to Christ. In other words... She did what she could. What do we do with all that Christ has done on our behalf? She prepared him for his burial. We look back at his burial, and yet the heart should be the same. You know, we started a baptism class today. Have you been baptized if you're a believer? I'm just asking. If not, we would love to have you start the baptism class, you can call Dom Avila. You say, well, Scott, why would you do baptism? Here's why. Why would you say that? Some people are afraid to speak and give their testimony in public. Now, listen, I don't necessarily think that's always an issue of a heart. It could just be fear. But, but let me ask you, if the Lord went to the cross for you, certainly you can overcome a heart issue if you're afraid of something Listen, it could be, I'm just asking. I mean, she can't break everything and spend everything and then take her hair down and use her hair as a rag for the feet of Jesus and we're comfortable and we're afraid. No, no, no. God wants something of us. It could be be involved in summer missions. It could be giving a week at Hume Lake. I don't know. I'm trying to think of all the different things. But I think Betty Stam, the missionary, said it well. I pray that this would be my prayer and your prayer. She said this, Lord, I give up all of my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, she said, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me, she said, prayed, with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy will 
in my life at any cost now and forever. I pray that that's my heart. I pray that that's your heart as we come to the Lord's table.